Well, hello there, you beautiful seven-figure millennial listener. I hope you're having a fantastic day. And welcome to today's episode of the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. If today is your very, very first episode, I just want to say welcome. Super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, I wanted to say thank you so much. I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And regardless, if you are new or returning, today you and I get to hang out with David Roy Newby. David Roy Newby is a legacy coach to top entrepreneurs that want to forge lasting legacies of success by wielding the wisdom of King Solomon, the same wisdom that he used to build a $4 trillion fortune with his enterprises. As a popular speaker, David shares the stage with thought leaders, billionaires, and even royalty, including Robert Kiyosaki, David Green from Hobby Lobby, and the Rockefellers. He is the founder of the world's most exclusive billionaire fraternity, the Solomon Wisdom Society, and the author of multiple books, that have been on bookshelves since 2006, including his most recent book, Beyond Billions, create a legacy of multi-generational success modeling King Solomon's trillionaire wisdom. In this episode, you're going to learn three things. One, how David grew up on welfare and came from a family of murderers to running a mastermind for billionaires. Number two, what you can learn from the world's wealthiest man that was worth $4 trillion. And number three, how David almost got murdered in the Philippines twice and how you can build relationships with high net worth individuals. We go all over the place and have an incredible conversation and David really goes deep on his strategies for building relationships with billionaires and doesn't really hold anything back. So this is an incredibly valuable insight into wisdom that normally is not that public. So before we go into the content for today though, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out to JBL218 who left a review saying, fantastic. Brandon is the absolute best person to host this podcast. He's an inspiring leader and a natural interviewer who is articulate and charismatic. Brandon is very knowledgeable and consistently creates phenomenal content. This podcast features unique individuals with inspiring stories that will accelerate results. Definitely check out this podcast if you want to unlock the secrets to success. So thank you so much, JBL218, if you're hanging out with us today. And if you're listening to this right now and you're a returning visitor, please follow JBL218's example and leave a review wherever you're listening to this. Not only does it make my day, but it helps other people to discover the show. And I might give you a pre-show listener shout out in a future episode. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible, crazy, and adventurous conversation with my friend, David Roy Newby. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. All right, Mr. David Roy Newby, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. I am super excited to be here, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I've been researching a ton of your stuff, and I just I just wanted to start with somewhere that I thought would be kind of put people in the middle of the action and kind of give some context of, as to who you are, where you've been, and what you're doing right now. And one of the things that came up in my research is the summer that you turned 10 years old, you spent some time in the Philippines. And so I was kind of curious if you can maybe start us there. Tell us the story of why you were in the Philippines to begin with and why that was an impactful experience for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, I grew up pretty poor, but 
foreigner in America, I realized after living in the Philippines is rich. So uh, my mom and my stepdad got divorced when I was seven. We go from being upper middle class to like living on welfare by my mom's in nursing school. Summer I turned eight, I spent on Alaska. I had an uncle who was a missionary to Eskimos. So that was really cool. Like I thought all Eskimos live in the igloos. And it's like, oh, the ones who live around Anchorage are just Native Americans who live in really cold weather up there. So um, that was interesting. You know, I guess that's, you realize things when you experience it much differently than just hearing about it, right? And so then two years later, my mom, uh, she was about to get her LPN, uh, licensed practitioner nurse before her RM. And she, she got this Christian newsletter called Last Day's Newsletters. And there was an article it came out quarterly, and every art of, every issue had an article about a different country and what was going on in that country. She read in the fall of 83, 1983, about the Philippines and how the people there are amazing, but there's just all this corruption, and, and the, the poor are very oppressed. And here's my mom, a divorced single woman, dealing burden to go to the Philippines. So she applies with the mission group. It was called Youth with a Mission, just like the largest non-denominational um, Christian mission group in the world. And uh, we got approved, which was amazing because like normally they do not let a woman go into a politically unstable country. The Philippines was politically unstable and she was divorced and she had two kids, but they let us go. Our church did an offering and that paid for it. By the way, I lived in Wisconsin at the time. I know you're a fellow cheese head. Um, <laughs> we, got, we got approved to go. Our church did an offering that paid for our trip. And uh, I'll share a real cool thing about like the beginning of the trip. It, the whole trip was amazing, but um I was really uh, always wanted to like be able to do motocross, those dirt bikes, but we couldn't afford a, a bike. So I had a BMX bike. I'm like riding my BMX bike up a 150 foot tall uh, motocross hill. Like the thing where you go down 150 feet and then up 150 feet. It was right on the Illinois, uh, Wisconsin border. I lived in Beloit, Wisconsin, just north of Chicago. So I make it like 90 feet. I'm cruising all the way down. I'm going as fast as I can, but there's only one speed on a, on a BMX bike, right? So I make it about three quarters of the way up. I fall. I don't make it. And then um, I fall. I broke my left wrist in three places, Brandon. The doctor sets my arm. It's the second time I broke my arm. And he tells me, um, hey, for the whole summer, because you had such a bad fracture, you're going to have to leave your, your hand in the cast the whole time. I was like, ah. I was like, no. Like, like I literally was like a human monkey. I would climb trees that none of my friends could climb. Like I was just crazy into climbing stuff and I was excited to like be able to climb palm trees and coconut trees. So I'm all depressed on the flight over there. When we get there, they take me to the children's hospital to make sure that the bones didn't move because it was a, a compound, you know, like I broke it three places. So they had to do the x-ray twice because I, I guess I moved the first time, but uh, they told me your arm is completely healed. This is three days after I broke it. We flew the day after I broke my arm to the Philippines. I get x-rayed the day after we landed. So it's a day trip. So literally, like, I experienced, we experienced two miracles in the Philippines. That was the first one. My arm was completely healed. So I had to, like, take it easy the first couple of weeks. But I was, like, climbing trees with my new Filipino friends within two weeks. Um, and then we, we were staying in this mansion for a week, uh, the national headquarters of the whole country for the mission group. And this dude... Uh, broken. This house is like literally like a 15,000 square foot house with its own water tower and like 15 foot walls. We had a guard dog and a little dog and um, some guy got in and he had a knife and he was threatening to kill us. My mom and the guys, there were, there were like 15 women and two guys and the two guys were out grocery shopping. They broke protocol. There's always supposed to be a guy in the house, but the guys go grocery shopping. 
this demon possessed guy like jumps the fence, gets into the property and he's threatening to kill us. Thank God he didn't have a gun. But my mom tells me, go call the police. Well, guess what? Police is spelled P-U-L-I-S in Filipino. So we go to P-O, there's no police. 911 doesn't work. We're like, my brother and I could not figure out how to call the police. And we're all foreigners, right? We're all from Korea, America, Germany, England. Like there were not any regular Filipinos with us. We're all, this is an international mission group. So my mom literally, like, I didn't expect to take, the, take this or this came to me. My mom, after like 20 minutes, she's a nurse. She took psychology. She's like using every psychological thing to try to calm the dude down and get him to be real, logical. And then she realized like she's not talking to a normal person. She's talking to a crazed person. So she told the guy like, in the name of Jesus, leave right now. And the guy just turned around and left. And he literally a minute earlier, he was saying, I'm going to slit all your throats. You know, I'm going to cut your bowels open, your guts open. And he's threatening all this torturous crap. And then he just left. So those were like two, the two craziest experiences in the Philippines. In the meantime, I was having a blast with friends, doing races in front of our house, climbing trees, having playing in the mud. I mean, just doing what kids do. So um, it was a life-changing experience for me. I'll share one last thing. Uh, human trafficking has become a lot more aware in the public consciousness in the last few years. You know, the Taken movie and all these different things, right? Uh, Operation Underground Railroad is getting a lot of publicity. I had friends in 1984 when I was 10 years old, when they were my age, whose parents had sold them for food to human trafficking rings. Their parents were starving to death and they're like, hey, um, we have five kids, we're starving to death. Let's sell one of the kids so the rest of us can survive for the next couple of years. Because the average adult made under a dollar a day in the neighborhood that I lived in. So just like when I realized like, while we're on welfare, I have holes in my socks. I have to run to school in Wisconsin so my toes don't freeze. but I have multiple pairs of socks with holes in them. I have multiple pairs of hand-me-down jeans and shirts. Like some of my friends had escaped from the human trafficking rings. They literally had like a tank top and a flip-flop and a pair of shorts. No underwear, not even a second flip-flop. Like that level of poverty like made me realize no American should ever complain. And, and we all have our own journey. I'm not at all dishonoring your journey, but it's always the, the gift of perspective to put your challenges in perspective to others is an amazing, amazing gift. So my mom gave me the greatest gift ever at 10 years old, like living in Alaska and then living in the Philippines. I went from like a cold climate to a warm climate. And I realized like we're crazy, crazy uh, blessed just to live in America. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I have some experience in the Philippines. I, I went there on a trip and I was climbing up this mountain and I, I had this experience too, where I was just like, I mean, I'm like, I told myself, I'm like, I'm such an idiot. Cause this guy that was helping me climb this mountain, I'm on the, I'm on the back of a horse and he's like guiding the horse up a uh, tall volcano in, in uh, Cavite, I think is the, the yeah, city. Cavite. Yeah. I have and, and it, from Cavite. I, I've been to that volcano. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And this guy is climbing this mountain in flip-flops. And like, I said the stupidest thing. And I was like, like, why aren't you wearing shoes? And he's like, I can't afford shoes. I'm like, wow, I'm a fucking idiot. Like, why would I say something like that? I just felt so terrible for saying something like that. But yeah, you're right. It just puts it in such perspective when you're in, you know, places like the Philippines, I've been, I've been in uh, Bali, Indonesia, and you just see, like, it just gives you so much more perspective when you get to experience something like that. So when you return back, when you were 10 years old, you know, what was that first day like when you were back in the United States? Like, was there anything that kind of influenced your life moving forward from that day on when you kind of came back to the U.S.? I don't know if it was the day I came back, but I remember about um, in that first week, 
I was doing dishes because I would always uh, wash the dishes and my brother would dry them. By the way, my brother and I did all the chores. I knew how to cook like several meals by the time I was 10 years old. Uh, I cooked three days a week. My brother cooked three days a week. Thankfully, my, my mom was a pastry chef and a professional chef, and she had amazing from scratch recipes. So we were very poor, but we ate really, really good. We made everything from scratch, like good quality. So, and it was all these. I don't know if you remember all these. There was all these in 1984 in Wisconsin, like it's half of Kroger. So thank God we had this very cheap grocery store. But I was doing the dishes and um, it hit me. My best friend, uh, he was in the same grade as me. He was 10. And he went to work every morning, 4 a.m. till 7 a.m. before he went to school. We would play after school together. He would do his homework at school and then come home and we'd like to play for two hours before dinner. And it just hit me like, here's my friend, my age. So I just started crying doing the dishes. I was like, man, mom, like I used to complain about chores, but I don't have to go work and make money just so we can pay the bills. You know, it just, I just had like this next level of gratitude um, after coming back. And uh, the other thing was, um, like, the Filipinos' generosity in the midst of that extreme poverty. Like, when we would go visit people, my mom would do free medical care in the morning because she's a nurse. So uh, from, like, we'd eat breakfast at 7, like, 8 till 1 o'clock, she would do the free medical care with the doctor. And then we'd have lunch. And then in the afternoon, like, 2 to 5 or 2 to 6, we'd go visit local Filipinos and tell them about Jesus, right? We're Christians, Christian mission group. So, um these Filipinos were so amazed and so grateful that like a foreigner showed up at their house. Like literally a lot of these houses were just made out of spare pieces of metal from the junkyard. Um, you know, they call it like shanty towns sometimes, right? Just spare corrugated metal. And they would go spend like $2 to buy us a snack. And they made $25 a month. Could you imagine you show up at some, some stranger shows up at your house and you make three grand a month and you go get a $300 meal to honor your, your honored guest. I mean, that level of generosity blew me away, Brandon. So um, I told my mom when we came back that uh, I was going to marry a Filipino one day. And I forgot I said it, but I got married at 22. And when my mom was doing the dance with me, you know, after the ceremony and at the reception, she told me, like, when you were 10 years old, you told me you were going to marry a Filipina. So I like to joke, it's the only prophecy I ever made. And, and my prophecy came true. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing those stories. These are, these are so fun already. And I'm excited where the rest of this is going to go. So I want to, I want to kind of jump forward and then jump backwards again. So there's another story I wanted you to tell if you could about spring of 2001, when you were holding your nine month old and you started to cry. And I heard you tell this story um, at a lecture and I thought it was a really incredible, impactful thing. And so I would, I would love for you to kind of dive in and share us what happened that day. Yeah. When my uh, son was nine months old, my firstborn son, I have, I have two sons. Thank God. Um, my wife worked midnight shift that night. By the way, she only worked contingent after my son was born. So she only worked three days a month. Um, she went to work at the hospital. She had picked up a midnight shift. Uh, my dad was sleeping at my house. My dad lived like 20 miles north of Detroit. I live like just west of Detroit. And he was going to some hospital the next day for some test. And so he slept at my house. It's the only night my father ever slept at my house. My nine-month-old starts crying and I do all the normal stuff you do. You know, I check his diaper. He was wet. So I change his diaper. Still crying. So I get some milk. I warm it up. I feed him, burp him. Still crying. Uh, I'm like, what the hell? So I'm starting to get a little frustrated. I checked his temperature. Uh, no fever. Still crying. So I'm like, he's not wet. He's not hungry. I just fed him. He doesn't have a fever. 
like, what's going on here? And I like started to have this kind of a feeling of uh, being embarrassed. Like, I don't want my dad to think that I don't know how to take care of my kid. And my son had been crying for like 20 minutes or so. And um, I started holding against my chest going, son, you know, be quiet. Like, you don't want to wake up grandpa. And I literally had done everything I knew how to do. And then I, I, my frustration started to turn into anger. Like, you know, stop crying already. And then I was holding against my chest longer. And Brendan, like, I had this moment of clarity. I'm like, if this keeps going in the direction it's going to go, I'm going to smother my son. Like, this is how people kill their kids. So I had that moment of clarity and I just calmed down. Like, sometimes you get into fight or flight. I wasn't totally fight or flight because of fear of embarrassment. My adrenaline was rushing. And so I just, like, had a moment of clarity where I calmed down and I checked his diaper again and he was wet again. Somewhere in the midst of that previous 20, 25 minutes, he had wet his diaper again. So I changed his diaper a second time and then uh, he stopped crying. But I called my mom the next day and I'm like, what the hell is this? Like my stepdad murdered one of my brothers. So I knew I was growing a very violent guy and I was a violent kid, but my mom taught me how to deal with anger productively. And I was never in a fight with anybody. And I never, ever like hurt my wife or my kids. But this one incident, I'm like, it freaked, it freaked me out. Right. And I was like, what the hell is this? I'm not blood related to the stepdad dude who killed my brother. You know, usually there's a concept, epigenetics talks about it. Um, uh, patterns of behavior are passed on through the DNA code. You know, 3,000 years ago when the Bible, they said the sins of the father are passed on to the third and fourth generation of those who hate God, right? So science has started to describe this statement from 3,000 years ago, epigenetics says. It's like, I'm not descended from the stepdad dude. So I called my mom the next day and I'm like, she's like the only person I trusted to talk to about it, right? And I'm like, what the hell happened? I almost killed Benjamin last night. She's like, oh, that's the spirit of murder. You know, you're, your grandpa choked your grandmother to death in front of me and your great grandfather killed your great grandmother. And I'm like, when the hell were you going to tell me this? Like all this time I had this genetic crap passed on to me and I didn't know it. And it took this incident like where I could have killed my son. So I wasn't like super mad at her, but I was like very frustrated that I had this thing in my family history. I had knew nothing about. And so that Brandon, that whole incident led me on a journey of going like, well, what else is there in the family history? Cause like, I want to be intentional. So that day I decided like this, this violence crap stops with me. So I really like went the opposite way and go, well, what's the opposite of being violent and harming and making your family not feel safe. It's like making them feel super safe and affirming them. So that led me on a journey of really committing to like, not just be better than my stepdad, which was a very low bar, <laughs> this murderous, adulterous, abusive dude. So like, how can I be the best husband and father possible? You know, but it took this crazy incident. And by the way, up until like three weeks before I told 150 people in the world that story at the Harvard club in Boston, I um, had only told my mom. So I told my son and I said, look, here's the family pattern. I was going to wait till you got married to tell you, but I'm going to tell you now. And um, and just tell them how, you know, I really have broken that cycle of violence. And, and um, I, I was really intentional about teaching my sons how to deal with their anger productively. But I'm like, look, you need to be really intentional with your kids and your grandkids because that totally gets out of our family bloodline. So I went from like this shameful thing I was afraid to tell anybody about except my mom to I told my son and then I told like the world. So by the way, Brandon, if there's something in your family history that you're like, would not want anybody to know about. I would say start with a friend that you know has your back and tell them and get the courage to start talking about it. Because me talking about that, it like it like it was like a dam broke. 
Now I talk about all kinds of crazy murder in my family history publicly. And that opened the door to me talking to 117 billionaires in the last three years. So like I took this biggest secret, the biggest family weakness and turned it into my biggest superpower. Yeah. I just want to highlight that. And thank you so much for sharing. And this is something, a quote from your book. It's, it says in freeing to share it's freeing to share your deepest, darkest secrets and remove the shame that comes with them. As long as you hide something that can keep you in the dark, afraid others will find out about it. Bringing it out to the light exposes it and weakens its power over you. I want you to experience the same freedom I do when I share my past with others so that you can, you and others can all benefit. So I just want to thank you publicly for, for sharing that because that was an experience that I had over the past few months. And I, I, I've talked about this on the podcast before. So some of you that are longtime listeners that are hearing this, you might have heard me say it, but I had an experience similar to, to n- not similar to David. I don't want to put it any, any, anywhere close to that. But I mean, I had some sexual trauma growing up and like, that was something that I never, ever, ever talked about. Didn't even tell my wife until October of last year when I talked to uh, somebody, then she kind of helped me uh, like process this whole thing and share it. And what, what, this was one of the most powerful things that I had to go through because it forced me to look at things from a completely different lens. And she challenged me to look at it as one of the greatest things that ever happened to me that like the actual opposite of of, of the fact that I went through this, this, this sexual trauma and I felt so wrong. And she said, you felt so wrong, but look at how you reacted to it. It's feeling so wrong caused me to constantly ask for feedback, constantly look to get better as a result of this, you know, thing that I knew was probably wrong that happened to me. And so it just forced me to kind of constantly seek feedback and grow and grow and grow. And it kind of expressed this entrepreneurial tendency in me. And so I just thank you for sharing that message because it's so powerful. And I think if you're listening to this and you have those things that you've suppressed for forever and ever, the gold is lying right next to that. So I would just challenge you to kind of deep it. Like, like David said, if it, if it requires you talking to a close friend, share it, you don't have to share it with the world right away, but I guarantee if you take the time to look at that and really examine it and be in a safe space with it, that you will very likely find that this is what, has been waiting for you for your next stage of growth to begin with. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing too, Brandon, I'm glad you just said that is, um, first of all, when you find someone safe to talk with about it, it'll feel like a weight off your shoulders, that you're not carrying the secret. Even if only one person you talk to about it, there's like a different level of release, right? Like oftentimes we're carrying all this emotional woundedness around and we don't realize it is like literally like we're carrying that proverbial ball and chain phrase, right? Like, like it's stopping you from having next level joy, next level achievement, next level, everything we want to have in life. So that's the one thing to realize, like it will benefit you immediately when you just tell Mm -hmm. someone. Number two, the next shift I made after telling people about it was I chose, I had already forgiven my stepdad for all this crap he did, but I chose gratitude for it. Like that, that doctor lady told you. I'm like, you know what? I have next level empathy for people because of all the trauma I went through as a kid. Like I wasn't molested, but my brother was molested by uh, a relative that lived with us when we were kids, like for a whole year. I was sleeping five feet away from them happening and I had no idea. I sleep like, like a dead person. Like I fall asleep in three minutes. I remember my dreams maybe once or twice a year. I used to fall off the top bunk of our bunk bed and wake up on the floor in the morning, like falling five feet out of the air did not wake me up. That's how deep of a sleeper I am. <laughs> so, um, so like for the years, my brother told me at 13, I was the first person he told when I was in eighth grade, um, like four friends told me that they were molested. My brother told me in seventh grade that our relative molested him. Uh, the next year, like three of my female friends told me that people had molested them, you know, whether it was an uncle or a dad or whoever it was. And, um, it was like, 
God gave me some kind of a sensitivity to wounded people, like growing up with my brother and just growing up around all this violence and crazy abuse. And so uh, I chose to see that as a gift. And like, I thank God for it because I can relate to anybody. You know, because even talking about your woundedness was part of your driver for entrepreneurialism. A lot of billionaires, they still have a heart wound driving them. Mm-hmm. Like the reason why Donald Trump before the presidency, forget about his presidency. Just let's look at him as a billionaire. Pre his presidency, he used to call Forbes every year and try to get higher on the Forbes list. His net worth or his self-worth came from how high he was on the Forbes list, how high he was ranked. His dad never affirmed him. Like this is the number one gift as a leader, as a father or as a mother or even as an aunt or uncle, you might, you might not be married, someone watching this and have kids yet. By affirming those around you, this is like the number one thing you can do to help people operate from a place of wholeness is affirming them and just making them feel loved and appreciated. Yeah. Another thing that I wanted to ask too is like, so you had this moment of, you know, holding your son and having this crazy experience of like almost smothering him. And then you talk to your mom, she kind of like revealed this. I I can only imagine what it would be like to take that for the first time and not know that this was kind of hiding in your background. But one of the things also in your book is that you found for years that these, for you says in your book for 17 years, I was modeling my stepdad's workaholic pattern, spending very little time with my two sons and wife. Once I started addressing these heart issues that drove me, I was able to operate from a place of being loved, accepted and approved. And I started investing a lot more time with my wife and children. So I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit on this topic of these heart issues. Like you shared that this, this inflicts lots of billionaires. So for somebody that wants to kind of go a little bit deeper, aside from telling somebody and, you know, kind of being in a safe space about this and, you know, like you just shared with being, if you have kids affirming them and, and saying that you love, love them or however we can talk about the, the other stuff you do with that as well. But I just wanted to kind of dive into this, this issue of heart issues. So once you uncovered that this was something in your past, what was that journey? Like, how did you start to uncover these things and break free of this pattern that was subconsciously programmed in you for years and years as a kid? It's sort of like uh, peeling an onion. Like I just looked at my life and I was like, I was asking myself this question. Like, why do I struggle to go spend time with my sons like every evening? Like, if I'm not intentional, why will I sometimes work all the way up until my wife says it's dinner time? And she literally says it three times to when she yells. And then I finally come upstairs and stop working, you know? And then I realized like, what's going on here? And so I just sort of looked at the pattern. And I'm like, well, my stepdad always had three jobs and he was a workaholic. And I'm like, I, I think I'm probably modeling him to some degree. So the first step I did was I just saw that this pattern I was operating from was straining my relationship with my wife. And I was like, I love playing with my sons. I'd like to think of myself as a 10 year old trapped in an adult's body. Like I'll love to go to the playground, play tag, you know, swing upside down off the monkey bars, do backflips. I taught myself how to do backflips on the swing sets. I would always do that with the kids. They always loved it. They're like, do the backflip. So um, I'm like, why do I love playing with kids? Why and what am I not playing with my sons more often? So the first shift I realized was this pattern isn't serving me. So I just scheduled seven to nine every night as a family appointment. And I'm like, if I was going to meet my favorite billionaire, like would I blow that appointment off or would I be on time and ready at that appointment and present during that appointment? So that's how I made a shift. That was even before I had met any billionaires, by the way, Brandon, but I just studied King Solomon. He was worth $4 trillion in today's money. And I also study a lot about modern day billionaires. So I always like to study high level wisdom. Yeah. And so uh, when I made that simple shift, that was the first shift. Let me just schedule this like an appointment and not just an appointment I can blow off, like an appointment I'm, I would always keep 
whatever you need to do mentally to keep an appointment, just, just do that. That's what worked for me. It's like, if I was meeting a billionaire, I would keep that appointment. Um, and so that was the first shift I made. And then the second shift was, um, looking at my language patterns and realizing that, um, you know, like spending time with them and playing with them and spending time with my wife every night was, was awesome. But I was like, well, what's, what's next level, you know, next level is, um, like helping my sons develop their skill sets as well as possible and affirming them for who they are. Not trying to, a lot of times it's easy to sort of have your kids want to be like you and, and maybe even not, not like say directly, like, well, you know, our family business is this, this is what we do. Like, like give your kids room um, to be themselves and, and use their skill sets. Cause we're like honoring each person's individuality. Like, you know, my wife's from Philippines and in Asia, the, the family unit is more important than the individual in the West. Like that movie, Crazy Rich Asians talked about it. You know, in the West, individual self-expression is placed as more important than the family. So to me, those are both either or paradigms. And I always like to get out of either or into and paradigms. So the and paradigm is, this is a great question to always ask. How do I honor the person I'm interacting with, whether it's uh, 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 a, 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 a a coworker or an employee or a boss or a wife or a kid? How do I affirm who they are and help them be the best version of themselves that they can be? And then how do I also um, honor the unit, whether it's the business or the family? I think that's a great, great question to ask. When you do that, then you can really teach them like how to run the family business. Maybe you do have a family business or want to have one and you'd love to pass on, build something great to pass on to your kids, maybe give them a great life that you didn't have, right? Um, so do that and honor the, honor the kids' individuality or your spouse's individuality, individuality or whoever it may be. So that's my little like Eastern, Western, and solution there. So affirmation is crazy, crazy, crazy powerful. And don't just affirm someone and do something well that you like, but um, affirm them just for their, their skill sets. Like Brandon, you're a super great encourager and um, you're a great listener. So like I just like say, hey, I just want to acknowledge you for being a great listener. Thank See, you. This is, this is acknowledging your state of being, not thank you for giving me a great interview. See that it's a subtle difference, but it's a difference. Yeah. Well, one thing that you've mentioned a bunch here that, that I want to dive into is you, lots of your wisdom comes from studying King, King Solomon. And, you know, you kind of mentioned that a, a bunch. But one, one last thing I wanted to kind of cover on this topic is I came across in my research, you said when you were 19 years old, you had a mentor that sat you down and started encouraging you to study King Solomon. So I was kind of curious because the, the, the research I saw, you kind of just briefly mentioned that. So who was this mentor and why, what, what do you think he saw in you to make you want to challenge you and pursue you to grow and to study King Solomon specifically? Yeah. So I, um, I was agnostic in high school. I studied like all the religions of the world, all the major ones in high school, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. And then, uh, I really love math. I'm a math nerd. So I even studied Zoroasterism and numerology. I thought that was cool that there's religions like all just based on math, you know, math of the universe. So, um, I became a Christian actually, uh, because I had become addicted to stealing like we were on welfare, and even though I learned to be appreciative of how rich we are in America, I went to the richest school uh, my sixth grade year in my town in Wisconsin. And I'm in all the advanced classes with like kids whose parents make a million plus a year and they're all wearing everything, brand new polo, all this. And I literally have holes in my socks in all hand-me-down clothes. And I was crazy self-conscious. So um, that turned into me, and I started 
liking girls in seventh grade. So I started stealing nice clothes in seventh grade to impress girls. My mom thought I was making enough to buy these clothes from all the uh, mowing lawns. But no, that was my candy money. I would eat candy bars with my lawnmower money and steal clothes. By 11th grade, I was stealing my mom's car, uh, going to the mall, stealing comic books, pornos, and Christian music. I stole all three of those things at the same time. Christian rock, like Christian heavy metal. But still, it's pretty hilarious, pornos and Christian rock at the same time. So my mom pressed charges on me for stealing her car because I got caught the second time. And she told me after the first time, like, you're almost an adult. If you get caught stealing a car, you can go to prison for this. So she pressed charges on me. And, like, I did the whole, you know, accepting Jesus, right, the Christian thing, like, very pessimistically. But I had tried everything I could do to stop stealing, and I was not able to do it. I was addicted to the adrenaline high, Brennan. Like, it went from wanting the stuff to, like, just the adrenaline high of, like, driving my mom's. Uh, it was like my Knight Rider car. It was like a Nissan 240SX, black on black, heads up display, you know, like the little digital thing in the windshield. And um, if you ever watch any old stuff on, on Hulu, it's like the kit car. So uh, it was a adrenaline rush to drive her car, top speed to them all, and like, will I get caught or not? Like the whole thing wasn't a adrenaline rush. So um, I became a Christian because I just could not stop stealing. I was addicted to it. Just how people are addicted to cocaine or whatever they're addicted to, Twinkies, I was addicted to stealing. And um, so I didn't have any emotional experience, but I realized like, cause I was going to kill myself. I was going to kill myself on a Tuesday um, or on a Monday because my court date was on Tuesday. And everybody thought I was this perfect Christian kid who got straight A's and went to church four times a week and, you know, honor roll and all this crap. Um, but like I had this other side of me. So um, uh, my court date was Tuesday. I was to kill myself on Monday. I didn't want to go to court and have people know what I was really like. Uh, but I think even Christian, so I realized like, well, if Jesus is just some other dude, I can always kill myself later. Like if he has no power at all and I'm still crazy addicted to the stealing, I can just, you know, hang myself in juvie if I end up going, get sentenced to juvie or whatever. So, um, yeah, I just realized after a week, there was no, no, no big emotional experience, but I realized like, um, I was, I didn't have a desire to steal stuff anymore. Like, um, the desire just left me, you know, like, like, um, so that was like my personal experience, but in college, I really didn't grow spiritually at all. Like I didn't study any spiritual texts. It's sort of weird. Cause as an agnostic, I studied all these religious texts and then I become a Christian in my senior year. Like I didn't really read the Bible at all, but in college, this guy sat me down, Corey Spagnoli. He's a 22 year old guy. And I was, um, 18, 19, you know, freshman end of my freshman year in college. He's like, Dave, you really love people. You're outgoing. You're a great guy. Like people can really tell that you care about them. You talk to them. He's like, you could really benefit from like learning wisdom. Like there's just a lot of habits you have that, that are not going to serve you in life. And so he literally just sat down with me we met at church. We were not inside. We were sitting on the curb on the side of the street, right behind our church. And we, he just, he brought his Bible and we read Proverbs chapter one together. Uh, Sol Solomon wrote three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Um, and the book of Proverbs is all about, how to be successful in area every area of life, how to be a great communicator, how to be good in business, how to deal with anger, how to deal with foolish people, how to deal with like almost any scenario you can find yourself in in life, how to deal with hot chicks coming on to you, wanting to sleep with you, whether you're married or not, right? Um, it deals with like everything. And so like he challenged me after reading that chapter. He's like, I challenge you for the next 90 days, read a chapter a day of this book because there's 31 chapters and every other month there's 31 days. So I took his challenge. I started reading Proverbs every day and um, it just helped me so much. I, I kept reading it. And then later on, I went a lot deeper into studying 
Solomon in his life and uh, what he did in business, which I, I'm really into business. So that was crazy fascinating to me. But the other really huge thing is if you had like a horrible male role model, they didn't have to be a murderer and an adulterer. Like my stepdad gave my mom a nerve diseases three times. Like we live in a trailer and he would fly prostitutes to the Bahamas on the weekends. So he would blow all his money on these other women and like give my mom just enough money to pay the bill. So it's just crazy. The message I got was, if you make lots of money, enjoy it for yourself and let your parent, your family just get by. I mean, that was what was patterned to me for my stepdad. Um, and, you know, uh, I wasn't like sleeping around my wife with prostitutes and all this and rubbing it in her face. Like my stepdad even brought prostitutes to the house and slept with them when my mom was there. This was like the level of psychological abuse he did on top of giving her venereal diseases. Um, but uh, I realized that I still had this selfish pattern where I would just do what I wanted as long as I was doing the bare minimum to keep my wife happy. And I realized that's like a really, really bad pattern. So there was like this crazy juxtaposition of if you like want to do better than your parents, whether your parents were really abusive or just neglectful at whatever level of foolishness or lack of wisdom they operated by either way, the best way to improve or move the needle, you know, improve your family legacy is to study wisdom. And King Solomon literally wrote the highest level of wisdom that's ever been recorded. He was worth $4 trillion in today's money. To put that in perspective, if you have a study of billionaires like me, that's 87% of the world's billionaires combined. He had that much wealth as one person. Like take 2,000 of the world's 2,250 billionaires, take all their wealth and combine them. That's how much money King Solomon had. And two trillion of it was gold, straight up cash, not stock price, right? Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, 90% of their net worth is a stock price. It's not cash. Like he had $2 trillion of cash. So, I mean, if you want to study wisdom, forget about the religious aspects of it. Like I encourage you to do the 90 day challenge, read the book of Proverbs for 90 days and see if your life doesn't improve. I bet it will improve in multiple, multiple ways. There you go. So there's a challenge. Maybe I'll take you up on that. I think that'll be really interesting. And I know David and I are in the uh, same mastermind group. So we'll, we'll be able to talk uh, over the, it'll be a, a forcing function for us to talk over the next few <laughs> months. And maybe I'll give some in, yes. uh, in, insights on that. So it'll be like, so, Murphy, Brandon, I challenge you. I challenge you. <laughs> from the Prince, the Prince skit on uh, Dave, uh, Dave Chappelle show. Love that. So you had this experience when you were 19, somebody sat you down outside of a church and he said, read, read King Solomon, start studying King Solomon. And I know in the work that you're doing today, you have, you know, you're the founder of the Solomon Wisdom Society, which is the most exclusive club for billionaires globally. And one of the value props that you bring to the table is sharing the wisdom from King Solomon that you've studied for years and years. So, so far, I'm just trying to think from the listener's perspective, we, we hear this crazy experience of you growing up in the Philippines, you have this adulterous, murderous stepdad, and you know, you, you start to overcome it. And then there's the, and now, and then they know from the intro that you are now working with billionaires and teaching them about King Solomon. So can you maybe set, set us the, set the scene and tell the story about like the first day you decided to reach out to a billionaire and like why, how you got that idea? Yeah, I was actually um, in the Philippines when I first had the idea. I went on a couple of trade missions, you know, trips to look at doing business with people in the Philippines with my American company. And um, I did two trade missions in a row. And then I went back and did like my own seminar there. And, you know, praise God, I've been on like national TV over there three times because I speak their language. And um, in a lot of countries, not just the Philippines, they appreciate it if you take the time to learn their language and look to empower their people. So I'm like doing seminars over there and publishing my second book is published over there. And so um, 
you know, that was humbling to like be on national TV in any country, like, you know, being interviewed on TV, it's pretty neat. So um, in that experience, I, since I've been studying Solomon so long, one of Solomon's huge teachings is that wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors, how he created all that wealth. And by the way, his great grandson tried to, he, he owned a bunch of gold mines and it was like doing the most advanced um, circumnavigation in the world at the time. Uh, the best mining techniques. I mean, they just did the best of everything, the most cutting edge. It'd be like, imagine you combine Tesla with the top five most innovative companies in the world and all combine them as one company. Like that's what his company was. So, you know, um, I shouldn't say, you know, like Tesla, SpaceX, I mean, Elon Musk is the most cutting edge guy right now amongst the billionaires, but there's like cutting edge people doing cutting edge stuff in mining and every other sector, there's people doing cutting edge stuff. That's why they probably become billionaires. They, they move the needle, they advance the industry. So um, the, the foundational key to all of his financial success was working with counselors very, very effectively, like, like multiple mastermind. She would use it in modern day language. And so um, I had the idea when I was in the Philippines, I saw all these people doing this great nonprofit work, but they're all doing it on their own. And I'm like, man, these guys would be so much more effective if they would use Solomon's wisdom and start masterminding and sharing best practices. In my mind, things in extremes, grew up in extreme poverty, um, you know, lived with people in extreme extreme poverty in the Philippines. So I also, I, I, I um, equally feel compassion for a billionaire as the homeless people on the street in my wife's hometown that literally sleep on the sidewalk and live on $2 a day and that feeds six people. Like I equally have compassion for both of them. And so um, I had the thought, well, who's helping billionaires mastermind together? And I'm like, there's got to be somebody. So I did a bunch of research, found out no one was. Then the Giving Pledge was created. Uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett created that. That's the group where a lot of billionaires, roughly 215, about 10% of the world's billionaires have agreed to get half of their wealth away during their lifetime, half or more, um, to nonprofit causes to improve the world. And so those guys only meet once a year for a day. So like there is no regular mastermind group just for billionaires. Um, at the time there wasn't, it blew my mind. So I'm like, well, I'll put one together. But it took me like four years, Brandon, of doing this research to find out there was no group and go, well, if no one's going to form it. And then I waited a few years. I'm like, well, I'm waiting for someone to form a group. The only thing that was formed was the giving pledge. So I'm like, well, um, I might as well form it. So I, that's, that's how that came about. And then um, I needed to do market research and test, would there be a desire? You need a marketing thing. You want to know, is there a desire for what you're going to offer in your target market, right? So then I um, was doing a lot of, this is, I'm doing a lot of heart healing work, like all the whole process between almost killing my son and where I am today. Um, in 2012, I was in the Philippines on a business trip, working on a gold deal worth a half a billion dollars. And the, a dude threatened to kill me out in the jungle. Like he could have literally just cut me to pieces and left me there and no one had ever known about it. Like I was out in the middle of Timbuktu, you know, or as they say, uh, bumfuck Egypt in the military. <laughs> I was out in the middle of nowhere. You're like, that guy could have killed you out of a volcano and no one would have known it, right? It was just you and him. So I realized- Wait, wait, hold, like, hold, hold, hold on, hold on. I, I want to I zoom in really here. I want to I hear this story. So why why did he threaten to kill you? <laughs> what did you do? Because, he was, because I'm very big on security, securing them, securing them. Uh, logistically, like moving the gold in financially and securing myself with the gold in the money. I'm like really big on security. Like I know people in special forces and FBI and stuff all over the world. I met all these guys doing high level research in the gold industry. Whenever you're dealing with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, like 
people are trying to jack you, whether they're trying to stick up a convenience store or whether they're trying to steal a billion dollars worth of gold or Bitcoin. It doesn't matter. I mean, greed and wanting to take the easy route, there's always that temptation at any level. And so I'm like super big on security. And one of my security procedures he didn't like. And like for an hour, I kept explaining to him, like using different wording. And again, he's a Filipino and I'm an American. So I realized English is his third language because we were in the Southern Philippines. So it's like English is his third language. Um, and so I was being very patient, but he just got frustrated and was like, like threatened to kill me because we couldn't do deal on terms. Thank God I grew up around a bunch of murderers because I have uncles who are murderers as well as my grandpa, my stepdad. So I was just like, well, that's one way to deal with your frustration. I'm like, it's not going to make you any money. And it might land you in prison, but I mean, like I could think of a lot of other better ways to deal with your frustration than that. So the fact that I actually applied one of Solomon's teachings in that situation, uh, Proverbs 15, one, a calm answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. He was full of wrath. He literally threatened to kill me to my face. He didn't even just think it. He said it. I answered him calmly and it calmed him down. And then he was just like, all right, we're cool. Or like what, what, <laughs> like he, it was well, kind of just, just like, like, almost like, I was like, let's get back to trying to figure out a solution to this impasse we have about this one logistical piece of us doing a deal together. So I got him out of that point of I'm frustrated. I want to beat the crap out of you or kill you in this case to let's get back to solving the thing that made you frustrated. Hmm. Well, there's there's something that people could take away from listening to this is we've we've learned how David David and his mom escaped being murdered in the Philippines twice now. <laughs> the answer is to be calm. And what was the first one? She just said, talk to, to what she said. Jesus wouldn't want you to kill us, and then and then they just no, went she away, commanded so. him in the name of Jesus, leave now. She told him to leave. <laughs> there you go. So she, maybe took, that, maybe... she took spiritual authority. And by the way, um, you know, like when you take authority of a situation, there's so much power and intention. Um, you know, like. Like they've, scientists have studied when you pray, there's like four uh, brain waves. There's alpha, beta, theta, and I forget the name of the other one, gamma or something. There's like a fifth brain wave when you pray that your brain goes into. It's this really specific frequency. So there's crazy, crazy power. Even if you don't believe in any higher power or you're agnostic, but you believe maybe there's a God, right? Like it's good for your health and it's, it's very good for your overall state, like to pray. Like there's science is starting to describe spirit stuff that's in spiritual texts now so we're we're at a really exciting time in history if you'll do a little due diligence like in quantum physics and stuff it's a it's a really exciting time but yeah like going back to finish the story about the philippines i realized like why the hell am i taking all these risks um in business well i wanted to be a billionaire so that i could like have authority to have a club for billionaires but here's what i realized even if i would have made a billion dollars in 2012 and that deal ran so I was talking to like five sellers who had like hundreds of millions of dollars of gold. Um, why would Bill Gates, at the time, Bill Gates was the richest man in the world, right? 2012. Why would a guy worth 80 billion or 87 billion at the time listen to a guy worth 1 billion? He's 87 times more successful than me. So I made two really powerful shifts. One was my authority and my value proposition comes, to, comes through. I know Solomon's teachings better than any of these billionaire guys. And so I can be a conduit of them accessing and implementing trainer wisdom at a very high level. So I'm like, well, that's a way better value proposition than trying to become the richest billionaire in the world, right? I don't want to wait all this time. My vision is to have this club and help them improve the world through masterminding, not to have more money than them. I'm very impact driven. So then I, the second big shift I made, Brandon, was um, my worth does not come from any amount of money. 
Like I am worthy as the welfare kid from this messed up family. Like taking that, the stuff that a lot of people would say would disqualify them. I totally 180 it and said, that is the thing that qualifies me more than anybody else to run this club. And then I also went through a process of heart healing. Like a lot of my heart healing and confidence com comes from like reading the Bible and all these amazing things God says about like loving me as a son and being approved. Like I don't need any older man's approval anymore because I truly at a heart level have accepted God's approval. So that was a multi-year journey of like just growing in maturity and emotional maturity and letting go of those, those wounds. Like a lot of those wounds from that rejection and my said that told me he wouldn't adopt me and feeling not good enough. Like it was a multi-year process to let go of that belief system. Cause I had that belief system, like at a core level of my heart, the memory cells of your heart are actually a hundred times stronger than the memory cells of your brain. Scientists now realize your heart has its own brain and it's crazy powerful. So if you want to really grow, if you've been sexually traumatized, you've been abused, you were beat up by your dad every day, whatever you experience. I have a friend, his dad literally raped him every day from the time he was five till he got married at 17 years old. It wasn't every day when he was a teenager, but he literally like had, he got married and left and his dad would still rape him sometimes. So whatever level of abuse you uh, experienced, um, you can choose to forgive that person. You can choose to see that as a gift because it allows you to empathize with others, but it still may be a process of heart healing. So give yourself grace. And then also that's where seeking next level wisdom is key. Because as I was reading Solomon's teachings, and applying a lot of the teachings about um, protecting your heart and healing your heart, like that's where I got the confidence to reach out to billionaires. So just to finish the billionaire thing, I know 33 of them to be interviewed for my last book, uh, uh, Beyond Billions. This is my last book, right? And I did shock and awe boxes, all this very advanced marketing stuff. I called all their offices before, so I knew who to send the package to. And I actually got three of them to respond to me. If you don't know marketing, to get um, an 8% response rate is really high from direct mail. But to get it from billionaires is like unheard of. So I'm not saying that to impress you with me. I'm just saying if you want to do something of a high to high level, you want to search out and implement like the highest level wisdom of, available. So I have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in learning about direct response marketing. I applied everything I learned there. I was studious learning it and applying it. And, you know, I've just, I, I, a lot of doors have opened. So yeah, yeah. I interviewed three billionaires for my book. And then I told that story of almost killing my son. Then I got invited to speak to groups of billionaires multiple times, like in Dubai, Monaco, New York. And I've spoken to 117 billionaires in the last three years. So those are the two big keys, Brennan, was using high-level wisdom in the marketing strategy, being healed in my heart, and then uh, being able to talk openly about things that I was used to, used to be afraid of telling people because I didn't want them to think less, less of me. So having a healed heart is, is foundational to um, just making the biggest impact, no matter what you want to do, whether yeah. you want to start a Tom's Shoes or you want to go start a school in West Africa, like my mom is doing or whatever you, your, your heart feels inspired to do. Having a healed heart is very, very key to making a big impact. There is so much gold that David just dropped there. And I know he was going for a while, but a few things I just want to highlight going back to when David was talking about, you know, feeling inadequate and not able to create a club for billionaires until he was a billionaire yourself. Lots of the times that I've heard from interviewing people and just from people that I've met, lots of the next level growth comes to some level of allowing to 
some level of giving yourself permission. You have to give yourself permission and nobody else is going to give permission for you. It's not going to be some external thing. You have to allow yourself to do it. And so I love that you shared that, that like you didn't have to wait for it anymore. You didn't have to wait for any validation. You don't have to worry about what billionaires are thinking about you anymore, as long as you're coming from a place from a heart. So I think that's really powerful and something that I'm working on myself. I was profiled by a guy named Blair Dunkley, who's in, who's in our, um, you know, mutual group that we're a part of. And depending on when you're listening to this podcast, it could have been before it, this or after this episode. So go and listen to Blair's episode, you know, as either foreshadowing or go in the past, in the past and listen to it. But one of the things he said to me in my language pattern is that I communicate mostly from the head and uh, that I needed to focus on communicating more from the heart. And so that's something that I'm working on personally. And I just, I love that you shared that that's the key to also working with people at really high levels. It's not the brain stuff. It's not being more intelligent or having more things. It's a lot of times just understanding how to go deeper in your heart and communicate as a human being. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, another thing I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted to go deeper on is, and this is the stuff that I was, I wanted to nerd out with you about is, is contacting billionaires. So, so you said in passing that you called them up ahead of time got the address of however you're supposed to send them. And then you sent them a shock and awe package or something that you learned from Dan Kennedy. And if you're listening to this and you haven't studied Dan Kennedy stuff, his, his stuff is phenomenal. So, but I was just hoping to get a little bit more detail. So what was that? What is, let, let's just start with what's the phone call like. So you, you call up and you find the contact information of somebody's office. What is that phone call like when you're on the phone with someone trying to like get their address or at least introduce something to them to get their attention? It's usually 20 minutes to an hour because billionaires have mazes. You have to be like the little gerbil running through the maze. You're going to get a receptionist, then you'll ask for their office. They'll usually send you to some person. Like usually you'll get transferred at least four or five times, if not more. Um, the longest call was an hour and a half to Bill Ford Jr.'s office, which is hilarious because the building is literally two miles from my house. I live right next to the Ford World headquarters, but he's like, fourth generation billionaire family. And he has literally nine assistants. I had to figure out which of those nine assistants was the best one to send a package to. So basically you need to use uh, really good people skills. Tim Ferriss in his four hour workweek book has a great uh, part in his book for times of day to call and, and language patterns to use. So I use that. Um, and even then, like if you're going to call a billionaire, like you need to expect that you're going to have to talk to lots and lots of people. And it may take multiple calls. So um, I just utilized those practices and finally got to the actual assistant that um, is the one who receives packages on their behalf. When you talk to them, it's very good to talk to them for at least five, 10 minutes. Five is probably shoot to get to know them and find something you know about them within five minutes where you can actually send them a little note as well as the note to the billionaire. So you want to like always get the gatekeeper on your side. Um, a lot of billionaires have three, four, five, 10 offices. You need to figure out which office is the best office to send the package to. Because oftentimes the one they put on their website is not the one that they work out of the most. So you call, what's that first line? What are you saying? Because like, I'm sure they try to get contacted all the time. The secretary, their job is to say no to people and keep the billionaire from not talking to people. So you get on the phone with the secretary and I'm assuming the first line isn't, hey, I want to ship something to this. To, you know, like what, what is that first line like? And what is the rapport building process like when you get on the phone with a secretary for somebody that works in the office of the billionaire? So like a couple of things you do is uh, when you call, you don't want to sound like a salesperson. So basically you just say, hey, um, so someone answers, you know, hello, we'll do, we'll do, we'll do Elon Musk. Right. I talked about him earlier. Hello. Thanks secretary. for calling, <laughs> thanks for calling uh, Tesla. Right. I've been to the Tesla headquarters, so I'll use this one. 
So, hey, thanks for calling Tesla. You know, Joey speaking, let me help you. Hey, Joey, uh, David Newby speaking. Trace me over to Elon's office, please. That's all you say. You say your name up front. You don't say, hey, how are you? You don't try to make small talk. You act like you're someone who knows them. You tell your name, you ask for their office. Usually they'll put you through to the first gatekeeper in that part of the company. Same thing with the second, the third, and the fourth. Usually when you get to a certain level where they're uh, the closer to the billionaire person, and it just works with anybody, not just billionaires, then they'll be like, oh, what's this about? Then you'll be like, oh, uh, I just called him to, to, to send him a package. Just wanted to confirm which are the offices to send that. You know, should I send it to the SpaceX office? Should I spend it to the boring office? Should I send it to the Tesla office? You know, so you, you want to have some context and show that you know something about them, right? That reinforces that, oh, you're probably a guy who knows them. Well, let me get you to his secretary and she can confirm that for you. So a lot of it is strategy. It's like strategy and confidence, both. So what are you, I'm just going to, I'm going to pretend I, I'm, Oh, go ahead. Can you get to the actual secretary? That's where you need to have a little more nuance and be a better listener. This is where like sales skills come into play. So, so I'm, like, oh, well, I'm the what's the package about? You know, because like their job is to screen them out. Like, no, Elon Musk does do PR. That's where you got to know about the person. Like Elon Musk has a PR person. If I wanted to get him on my podcast, I would look to get a hold of his PR person, not his secretary. This is where nuances are important. Like, what is your goal? And then you, you use your strategy that matches your goal. So, yeah, like he has a PR person, but sometimes so does do PR himself. Like he's been known, known to respond to people on Twitter. So, um, you, know, you, need, like, you need to do your research on the person ahead of time. You need to show at every level that um, people like they'll, they'll smell out someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, and someone who's like, you know, like who, someone, you don't want to go in there acting like a first grader. You need to act like a college graduate, like when it comes to marketing and sales. So you do your research on the person, you know what they're about, because when you get to their actual secretary, they might ask you a few different key questions. You need to be answering their question very succinctly about exactly what you want to get to them. Okay. So you, you finally, you knock down four five, nine gatekeepers, whatever it takes. And they say, okay, you can send something. Here's the address. Now, now let's get to the Dan Kennedy part. So like, what, can you maybe give an example of something that you've sent that, that kind of got their attention? Well, I've sent stuff to people where I confirmed the address and I got sent back because I didn't put it to attention the right person. So when that secretary confirms the address, you confirm, should I send this package to your attention or it's just the someone else receive and screen his mail? So that shows respect for their system and that you understand they have multiple layers. So that's the first thing you need to ask. Once you know who to put that package attention to, if it's someone other than them, so you want to ask, will you please let so-and-so know that I'm sending a FedEx or UPS, whatever package tomorrow, it'll be there in the next three days so that they're expecting the package. So you want to honor their internal communication and just make a powerful request. Um, you want that person being ready for your package, not being surprised by it. Number two, uh, you want to do a shock and awe box. Like these guys get 50 to 100 pieces, maybe more a day of mail from people asking for money for a nonprofit to everything else, wanting to have them on their radio show or their podcast or you know, wanted to do a business thing with them, or I got some invention you got to see, it's going to help Tesla or whatever it is, right? So their job is to like find the 95 things to say no to and find the two or three to say maybe to, to even maybe show to them or tell them about. So you want to cut through that clutter and be in that 5% club. So how you do that is um, your message needs to appeal to their values. You do your research on that person. You need to know about the person ahead of time. Number two, um, if you have a book 
if you're ever mentioned in an article, if you are ever on a TV show, anything that reinforces expert positioning uh, and or value you can give them, you want that to be in the package. So me, I'm an author. I published three books. Um, I didn't send all three of my books to these billionaire guys. I actually sent them. Um, like when I, you know, when I reached out to the 33 billionaires that I would love to interview for, for my Beyond Billions, my third book, I did send them my second book. And then I sent them a little video of uh, me being on like Philippines national TV. So like, oh, this guy not only knows how to get a book published, he's on TV, he's an expert. So you want them thinking this guy's an expert, right? If you don't have that, at least your letter needs to speak very much to their values. Like in two or three paragraphs, say, hey, I appreciate this about, uh, about Elon. You want to almost like write the letter to them, but know that the secretary is screening it. So mm-hmm. say, I appreciate you doing this, this, this. I love that. I'm really aligned with this. Um, I'd love to learn more about this thing you talked about in this interview or, or you guys are doing this thing at Tesla, right? So I'd love to hear how do you plan on dealing with the, the raw material shortage issue with China and there's only so much raw material to make these electric batteries. Like what, you know, what do you, I'd love to leave your interview about that and say at a technical level, how are you dealing with high level scientists to solve it, right? I'm, I'm spitballing right now and making a lot of these letters. Yeah. So you get to the point, like appreciate, make a request, give them three ways to respond to you. Make it easy to say yes. Yeah. And the one thing I'll point people and to then is follow research- up to the package. So you want to do a shock and awe and then follow, like speak to their values, appreciate request, three ways to respond to you and then follow up like three days after the package arrives. So you always want to send it at least ground with tracking where you know when it got there and then um, follow up within three days. You don't hear from them within three days. And you call to follow up or you email the follow up, the person that you contacted. Well, if it's the same person that you talk to is the one you send it to, then I always, you always want to ask them for their direct email at the end of that call. Yeah. And their direct okay. number. You, already went through, you don't want to go through the nine geekers every time. So you want to get their direct number and their direct email. You build a load of rapport with them and that they appreciate that you're someone who appreciates, respects their time. Oftentimes I'll give you one or, or the other or both. Yeah. So man, they, well, thank you so much for sharing the gold and, and actually how to do that. I wanted to make sure we d- dove in there. I will say for people listening that want more resources on this topic, if you search uh, the one about mailbox excitement, I think is what it's called. It's a, it's a podcast for the, I love marketing podcast with Joe Polish and Dean Jackson. They talk about this kind of stuff because people think direct mail is dead. And I think it is honestly one of the best ways that is still alive that I, that I want to experiment more with as a marketer. If you really want mm-hmm. to get the attention and develop real relationships with people, this is something you need to make sure that you're studying. Any other big resources that you've learned from that would be valuable for our listeners to like study if they want to do more of this stuff and experiment with it? Um, you don't want to go overboard, but one of Solomon's teachings is that the gift opens the way for the giver. Gifts are very powerful in multiple ways. If you want to, because um, number one, like Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, Reciprocity. If you give someone a gift, that's why the hired Christians when they were allowed in the airports back in the 90s, but if you give someone a flower, people just felt subconsciously like they should give something back. That's what reciprocity. Um, so you want to give a gift to somebody, like if you know something about the person, make it more personal. Uh, but like I've like literally mailed people, like this is a silver coin that shows the queen, the visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon. Like um, Sheba brought Solomon basically a $500 million gift. And um, there are only two coins made in the world that actually show something from Solomon's life. And I have, I have both of them, of course. So I have multiple copies of them. Um, I mail them to people. It's just like if I was mailing a Jewish billionaire who I know is actually devout at some level, 
like at least I can find out in my research, they've at least had a bar mitzvah. Um, then I would mail them one of these coins. And this could be a really cool way to cut through the clutter. Here, I'll show you the coin itself. Like, I'm not sure how well um, that's showing up, but. Yeah, and if, if you're listening to this and you can't see it. That's yeah, it, on the phone. She was in front of him and there's all these camels. She literally brought him like $400 million worth of spices. Probably the biggest gift of spices ever. She brought him from North Africa, like a 20 day walking journey all the way up to Israel back in the day. Um, no flight, no trains, just, just your feet, no, no planes, trains, or automobiles, just your feet, um, and riding camels. So could you imagine someone comes to visit you and they bring a $500 million gift? That was normal back then for Kings to bring other Kings 400 to $600 million gifts. But she heard about all the stuff he did. Like he literally created the wealthiest economy ever as a King. Um, like everybody had a house and silver was as common as a pebble. People would have just stepped over this coin. They wouldn't bother to pick it up. That's how loaded they were as a country. So he wasn't just personally loaded. The whole nation was loaded. And, um, because he did business very effectively with all the surrounding nations. And so, you know, uh, wealth is for everybody. I do not believe in modern economics. There's only so much pie to go around. The, the pie is expandable. And so when you understand that, um, like Shiva came to visit him. So like I've mailed silver coins like this to Jewish billionaires and that's cut through the clutter. Sort of like, wow, like this is a cool coin. And like, it doesn't have, these are like a hundred dollars each. You don't have to do a gift that expensive. Sometimes we just seem more thoughtful. It doesn't have to be that expensive, but, but whenever possible, send a gift because it really accelerates the engagement process. Yeah. Love that. Thank you so much for sharing. That was incredibly valuable. And I know we're, we're like coming up on time here and I have like 30 other things I wanted to talk to with you. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll have to do a follow-up because like, I love what you teach. I love the, the the context that you teach and I love the vulnerability that you share behind it. But I think one thing that would be really important for our audience specifically to hear is uh, the difference between a fulfilled billionaire and an unfulfilled billionaire, because you work with people that have literally, you know, more money they could ever spend in their entire lifetime sometimes. And, you know, I, I, I've heard you tell stories of, you know, billionaires that have committed suicide. So just from your perspective of working with these incredibly wealthy people that have everything, what do you view as the difference between somebody that is happy and satisfied with their life and somebody that has it all and is still miserable? I think, um, Going back to that affirmation issue, I think that uh, the reason why most cultures had a habit of fathers blessing their kids and affirming them, like nowadays in modern times, I mean, some American Indian tribes still do it. Uh, the Masai tribe, like the young men have to go kill a lion to become a man. There's like rites of passage for young men and young women to be recognized as adults by the community at large by society and we've lost that in america so um i think that there are a lot of wounded people walking around who were never affirmed and i think it's you know it's just a very wise design for society uh for parents like maybe you're a, a single mom and you have a kid and, and maybe that dad's not involved in your kid's life or maybe your dad's not involved in your life your dad's dead um so i think it's important to heal the heart that's why i talked about that because neither one of my, my dad, who's not on my birth certificate, he never affirmed me, um, you know, as his son. My stepdad didn't claim me as a son, right? He was going to adopt me, then he decided not to. So, you know, I have that in common with Jesus. Neither one of us have a dad on our birth certificate. Pick <laughs> <laughs> <a> good one. <laughs> Very different, though. I'm born of a man. Let me, let me be clear. I don't want to 
a bunch of uh, conservative Christians complaining when they watch it. <laughs> but um, but like there's there's like it's it's a to know that you're approved and you're loved and you're valued and and you're appreciated just for who you are, not because you got straight A's or because you made a million dollars or ten billion dollars. Like just being appreciated um, in a firm is so so powerful. So um, that's why I that's why like fifty percent of my coaching, Brandon, is about strategically creating a culture of affirmation with your spouse, with your kids and with the people you work with, because you just like enliven the hearts of the people around you. And someone with, with a empowered heart will run circles around someone with more intelligence, with a, with a broken heart, you know, with a wounded heart. And so um, that's why a lot of my work is centered around Robert Solomon's teachings around um, the heart, protecting and healing the heart. Because there is no amount of wealth, um, the billionaire who's not fulfilled, he's trying to fulfill his heart's desire for affirmation with more and more and more success. And, and, and he's just trying to fill a hole with the wrong thing. You know, it's a whole proverbial uh, square peg in a round hole. And so um, I think the key is realize at a heart level, what do we really desire and achieve when you when you when you fulfill that desire of your heart now you can achieve great things from a position of wholeness instead of from a position of wanting to prove yourself to the world because you know you're still feeling inadequate at some subconscious level and the billionaire is never going to admit that in public but that's at an emotional level was driving them yeah everything is decided on emotion and then justified with logic we're way too logical in america like in indian cultures and in asia in general People are more in touch with their intuition and their heart. So I think we need to, we would really benefit in America and Western societies from learning to get more in touch with that. Yeah. And I would highly encourage everybody listening. I read I read the David's book, Beyond Billions. Go check it out. It's really interesting perspective because you would think lots of it is around, you know, how to deal with your wealth and stuff like that. But I was really exp- surprised and excited to see that lots of it is about relationships and making sure that you're understanding how to, uh, you know, have good conversations with your family. Because like lots of these issues that you see with these high net worth individuals, it's, it comes down to relationships. And that's why I think that was one of the main reasons I wanted to, to, to talk with you and have you share your wisdom with everyone is because of the relationship component of it. And the other thing I, I, I don't know if it was from your book or something I heard you say that just aligns so well with the seven figure millennials mission is that no amount of achievement is ever going to give you happiness. You know, you could, there's people that are constantly achieving more and more. And so like, you have to learn how to be happy now, even if you don't have your quote unquote goals fulfilled, because like, once you get your goal, it's not going to make any difference in your happiness unless you learn how to be happy right now. And so I think that was mm-hmm. something that was reflected at least in what I saw in, in your work. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I just thought that was really powerful. Yeah. Choosing joy, choosing gratitude, uh, choosing forgiveness right? Like me, if I said that, I forgave him already, but then I chose joy for growing up under that mess up of a guy because I can empathize. So like that was a huge shift for me was growing in my understanding that I can be joyful about this and um, thankful for it. And so, yeah, I would say that whole uh, phrase they say in business, be, do, have. The number one thing to focus on being is instead of being successful and thinking success is like be joyful and be grateful. That's like the foundational thing to build everything else upon. If you build billions of dollars on a wounded heart, your family's gonna crumble, your business is gonna crumble. Mm-hmm. 
Love that. Well, like I said, I want to be respectful of your time. So I'll ask a few kind of uh, quicker questions and then we can kind of wrap things up here. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, do you have maybe a tip that you've learned from working with billionaires and studying trillionaire King Solomon's wisdom when it comes to specifically your health or relationships that you think have been the, the most valuable things that you'd want to share? Yeah, in terms of relationships, I've talked to people with very, very messed up families where like the kids won't talk to them. They want nothing to do with the business. They're literally waiting for them to die to get their money because their trusts are set up. <laughs> and then I've talked to people who like the kids are actively involved in the business. And um, I'll give you one example. Uh, David Green is one of the guys, billionaires I interviewed for my last book. He had set up traditional estate plans and uh, his sons, and, and uh, they were already, they literally were at the point of maybe losing the business because they had too much debt load. And then they had expanded too quickly using debt. So you want to use debt very, very, very sparingly. Um, but they were facing going under. And his one son said, um, dad, you know, we can always build another business if this business goes under. Like the relationship was so strong mm. that the son was like, dad, we believe in you. It's not the end of the world if this business fails. Like you didn't fail us. So the, the difference between those guys is David Green was very intentional about passing his values on to his kids. Whereas a lot of other billionaires, their business is their favorite kid and they neglect the other kids. So this is why the kids want nothing to do with the business. So again, going back to that either or dichotomy or and, I heard one billionaire say, anybody can have a, can be a great dad and have a great family. Very few people can become billionaires. He was operating from either or. That was so sad to me. It's like, build a great business, become a billionaire and have a great family. It's not either or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing I saw also, I think it was another podcast that you're on that I listened to that I think was so powerful is that treating your family as like a division in your business. It's like a really easy way for an entrepreneur to digest that information is that you should not view your family as something completely separate from your, your business because there's lots of bleed over. And if you're treating them as two completely separate things, but thinking about it, it's like, I need to make sure my family is successful as a component of the business is, is a really important mindset shift for people when it comes to making sure that everything is in alignment with where they want to be. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, well, David, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Besides, everybody can go on Amazon, find Beyond Billions by David Roy Newby and kind of listen and, and learn from the wisdom of not only King Solomon, but the 30 billionaires that you interviewed for the book. So that's a, one way that people could find out more about you. What are some other ways that people can continue to follow your work and the incredible things that you're doing? Uh, I'm on social media. So by the way, I mailed 33 billionaires. I interviewed three. I probably okay. featured like nine or 10 different people. I, you know, I talked to people who work directly with them. I did interview three for the book, but uh, yeah, I'm on social media. I'm an old fogey. I'm 46. So um, I have Instagram. I'm David Roy Newby on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. I mainly post on Facebook. I'm learning to teach myself to post my pictures on Instagram because you can share it right to Facebook as well. Um, so I'm looking to get a little more efficient there. Um, but yeah, those are the main places on social media. And then like if I go on a TV show or a radio show, I usually post it, you know, on my social media channels. That's how usually people find out about stuff. 
Love that. Well, I just want to say, if you're listening to my voice right now, and this is your very, very first episode, I just wanted to say welcome. It is an honor to have you hang out with me and David today. And I hope you come a regular listener and subscriber. And I bring on incredible people like David every single week. And as you can tell, I like to go really deep with people. This is not just some surface level stuff. And if you're somebody that is returning every single week, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. You're what makes this possible. So really appreciate you. And thank you, thank you, thank you for, for being a listener. And regardless, if you are a new subscriber or if you are uh, faith, uh, you know somebody that is returning over and over again, please help share David's message. As you can tell, we talked about lots of incredible things today. So if there's one friend that you have, please just send them with them and say, hey, let me send you some trillionaire wisdom today. I don't think anybody would be opposed to, to hearing that. So please share this with a friend, leave a review, and uh, really want, want to spread the message that David is, is creating here because I think it's so incredibly well um, impactful for us. So David, thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate you. And I look forward to continuing the conversation in, in, in TFL. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm excited for your listener. You're doing a great job of finding your listeners. Keep up the great work. Thanks, man.